Welcome to Falling in Love with God's Word with Jill Grossman. Hi, I'm Jill. I'm glad you're taking the time to grow in your understanding of God's Holy Word. I invite you to visit JillGrossman.com. There you'll find additional resources to help you fall in love with God's Word even more, such as books, speaking topics, and workshops. Now, let's get started with today's lesson. Okay, so I found this scripture right before we started, and I thought I'd just start here. In 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, I have written to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. And then he goes on to write his letter to who he's writing in 2 Peter, but I thought, oh my gosh, what a perfect beginning. Because I want to understand, and I want us to recall, this is what we're going to do. We're recalling the words of Daniel, a holy prophet. So, like I said, there's two chapters we cover. So let's jump into chapter 7. As we begin, I want us to keep in mind that chapter 7 precedes chapter 5. So all the stuff we've gone up to with the lion's den and, and Persia taking over Babylon, let's just erase that. Rewind. And this all happens about 14 years prior to um, Belshazzar and the final feast. That's why I have that picture up there. So let's just forget the last couple of weeks and let's go back to this. And um, so it's 14 years prior, and let's adjust our mind. We're going to be jumping, we're going to be bouncing back a little bit chronologically. We are now switching from the stories of God's success and glory over kings to prophetic visions. And I think that's why they did it this way. I think that's why the book of Daniel is set up this way, because that's how it's kind of, we're doing all the God's glory and how he overcame the kings, and he's not intimidated by kings and all their glory. And then we got that all out the way, and now we're going over here on visions and prophecies. Because if we bounce back and forth, I think it'd be too fractured because there's so much information. Um, And so the prophetic visions are covering both the promised appearance of the Messiah, excuse me, and for the first time mentioned in Scripture, we see the word Antichrist. And in the Greek, the prefix anti has several meanings. It means against, it means instead, it means in place of. So when it's used in scripture, it could mean a person is against Christ or a person instead of Christ, an imposter, false Christ. That's why it's Antichrist. So the four beasts in the dream are the most, are commonly held view from the commentators about the four beasts are, it's it's, um, relevant and and, uh, complementary, a better way to say, are comparable to Revelation uh, verses 17, uh, 15. And Daniel's vision of the, and those, those visions of the four beasts are similar, like I said in Revelation, but they're also similar to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and they paralleled the dream that he had back in chapter 2. So Daniel is still under Babylonian rule, okay, that's, we're setting the stage here, and the vision addresses the future of Babylon and the succeeding kingdoms to come, along with the trials and the final victory of those who worship the Lord. So here's what most commentators agree with the explanation of the dream. So let's start with verse 2. The four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, as it says. The winds in the Bible usually represent God's sovereign power, and simply put, the four winds represent God's judgment. And, and the 
and on the sea, and the sea is represented by humanity. Now, I didn't put this here, but other scripture, Isaiah 57, 20, and Jude 13 refer to the sea of humanity. That They don't actually say that, but they're talking about that. So when the Bible talks about this great sea, they're talking about unbelievers, Gentiles, the human, uh, humans. The four winds are, um, they represent God's sovereign power. God's power and God's judgments in this particular scripture. Okay? The churning and the unrest of the sea in scripture that it talks about with which the beasts come from represents the destructive forces that they will bring throughout the centuries to come. So that's why it's not just a sea. It's a churning sea. It's, a, it's, it's bringing things up. Okay? It also is worth mentioning that when, when here's the good news, that when the, good new, the, the uh, new heaven and the new earth appear, there will be no more sea. In, Ma- in Revelation 21.1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That might be because all of us have been brought up to heaven now, if humanity is represented by the sea. I'm just saying. All right, so let's remember that we look as we look at these prophecies... And we start getting rumbled a little bit. But we've got to remember, Christ conquers all the evil kingdom. Let's not forget the rock that knocks down the dream. Okay? And it even says in our, in our study this week that they will be destroyed. All right? So I want us to remember this as we walk through the prophecies. Let your heart be filled with hope that God conquers it all. So reject all fear that may try to come in even after you go home. Because any thought that does not inspire hope is not coming from heaven. Just remember that. Any, any thought that does not inspire hope is not coming from heaven. And that God has a plan. So, with that said, let's break down the best we can. So here we have the four beasts. And in seven four it says, in chapter 7, verse 4, it says, The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. And it watched until its wings were torn off. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. So the first beast was like a lion and had those wings. All right, this seems to represent Babylon. The wings being torn off may portray the loss of speed that Babylon had in their conquests. So their empire slowed is basically the conquest of the empire. And receiving the heart of a man may indicate a more humane empire as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliating insane years back in chapter 4. So that's why it's saying that. All right, so then in verse 5, it says, And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. The second beast is the Medo-Persian Empire that succeeded Babylon. The powerful bear represents Persia, and it's overwhelming its enemies. Remember, Persia grew to be a very big empire. Remember how it overwhelmed Babylon when it came in and took over. The bear being raised on its side suggests a predatory stance and that Persia was a predominant partner in this empire. 
And the three ribs represent the three main conquests that Cyrus the Great, who was the Persian king, had in, in his, um, and his successors. They conquered Lydia in four, 546 B.C. They conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And then they went on to conquer Egypt in 525 B.C. So that's what they, most commentators believe the three ribs are, are the conquests. So then in... Uh, verse 6, it says, After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. All right, so the four wings um, and, the, it was, and the heads were the minion it was given. All right, so this beast represents Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. Okay? Alexander's armies were famous for their speed. When Alexander took over, I mean, when he, he came, if you read about him, he overwhelmed and took over with great speed. His empire grew very quickly. And I think that's why um, there, you have represented birds and leopards. They're fast. They're fast. And, um, uh, and so, okay, so with that said, I just want to point to Alexander. Alexander fought with an army. Believe, here, this blew my mind. Alexander fought with an army of only about 35,000 men. All right? They were not known for their size like Persia, but known for their speed. Alexander was tutored by Aristotle as a child, and he, had, he accomplished huge military feats in a very short time. In just 12 years, his armies marched eastward until he became the master of all lands between the Mediterranean and the modern borders of Afghanistan. After his death, his empire was divided by four different generals, which represents the four different heads. So, for what that's worth, the United States is about as wide as all of that, just to give you an idea. Of, of how much land he conquered there. Okay, and then we move on to this beast. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. All right. Many theologians interpret that the fourth beast is the Roman Empire and the ten the Roman Empire and the ten horns are its latter day extensions of that of that end uh, at the end of the age. So there is a little horn that comes up and from them uh, comes up from them and is boastful. Boastful. Now I'm going to talk about that more on a minute, but I'm going to continue on here. So hold that thought. When Daniel was thinking about the meaning of the vision, he saw thrones set in place. And then he saw, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The court was seated and the books were opened, as it says in in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7. The scene is a courtroom where the books were opened and the people are judged. Daniel's vision portrays God as eternal, pure, and holy, and he is the final judge of all humanity. And with the death of the fourth beast, or the destruction of the fourth kingdom, okay, this obliterates not only that kingdom, but all kingdoms, and allows a new kingdom, which is God's kingdom, to take over. So, 
In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming on the cloud coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this is the introduction of Jesus Christ and his reign, and the one who is given authority over the nations, and they'll worship him. His dominion is eternal. When Jesus spoke to his disciples of his second coming on earth, he said this in Matthew 24, 30. They will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud of heaven with power and great glory. So he's describing himself. All right, so now let's go back to the little horn. As we read, we know the angel explains that the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom and that it is different from the others and goes into great detail from what we learned in chapter 2. The empire at the end appears to have had ten kings ruling simultaneously okay, in some type of confederation or some one world government. So sometime in end times, whether it's, you know, he's thinking, he's not thinking our end, he's thinking probably a few hundred years. They didn't have a one world government or a ten uh, type confederation years later when we had the four generals that, that divided Alexander the Great's empire, because out of that comes someone else we're going to talk about. So we must, he had a vision past that, which must be what we're waiting on. This was never true of the earlier Roman Empire either. So like I'm saying, Daniel sees farther. So going back to the slide, then another king, a little horn, will subdue the three kings, and these kings will become the dominant force in this confederation. God permits this. Let's just make sure we understand that. God permits him to persecute believers and speak against God openly without fear and will rule for times, time, and half a time, which is three and a half years. And that's said in Daniel uh, 7, 25, and it's also mentioned again in Revelation 13, 1 through 5. So, moving on on Revelation 13, 1 through 5, the beast comes out of the sea, all right? So it does, it mentions this also, and persecutes the saints just like Daniel's beast. The beast blasphemes God and persecutes the saints just as the little horn does. The beast has authority for 42 months, it says in Revelation, which is, uh, which parallels the little horn's reign, which is three and a half years. So um, times time and half a time is three and a half years, or 42 months is three and a half years. So the beast in Revelation and the little horn in Daniel seem to be the same. And uh, this is probably the Antichrist. Now this is what most commentators are agreeing on. I'm just, I'm, this is not, you know, I'm not saying, thus say the Lord. This is what the... Everybody see most people are agreeing on. There are lots of different interpretations of all of this, and it may become uh, upsetting to you at times. But remember that all our hope should be built on God's ultimate triumph. I want to point us back to the end of the book, the very end. We win. Yay! Life eternal. And not becoming fearful and focusing on all that is wrong in our world. 
Okay, it's going to become unstable. Things are going to get uncomfortable, but we don't know when. We just know the season. So focus on the fact that God has orchestrated this since the beginning of time. He had a plan in place since Eve decided to take the apple and took the bite and gave it to Adam. He is in complete and ultimate control of what will and must take place. He knows the how, the when, the why, and the where. We don't. But we need to stay focused and grounded on him. So before we move on to chapter 8, let's talk about this world dictator that is to come, this Antichrist. So, points to think about. He will be wanted, and he won't be rejected. Okay? People will want him to lead. You can just hear him. He's going to have the answer for a Middle East problem. He's going to make everybody settle down with all this hate stuff we deal with. He's going to have laws in place. People are going to look to him and go, oh my gosh, this guy has the answer. The world will be hungry for peace and stability. And so instead of looking to God, they will look to man. Or they'll look for the government and its ruler, you see. Because I can see it now in the younger generation, with the, and, and even some of our generation, of just the Internet and the instant information we have available to us. We've kind of pushed God aside. Oh, never mind, I got the answer. Here, let me Google it. And from that, there's nothing wrong with that, but what comes along with that now is a spirit of arrogance and a spirit of um, um, entitlement. You know, well, I have the answer. You know, you you can't tell me that. Like, you see it with um, the officers deal with this all the time. You can't tell me that. The law said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they get this little attitude, and, and that's what we're seeing develop. So if these people are going to the Internet for their answers... Why do they need God? Why do they need, you know, be sure, uh, be certain of what we do to see? And wait, what's Hebrews 11.1? 1? Um, hope is sure, certain of what we hope are and sure of what we do not see. I'm saying that backwards. I have that backwards. Faith is evidence of what we hope for and, and, and certain of what we do not see. Yeah, right, of certain of what we do not see. Right, so that's faith. It's it's. it's holding in what we know here. But if we rely too much on what we know from the internet, we're not going to see God. We're going to depend on someone to give us the answers because we're depending on the internet to give us the answers. Um, He will be appealing and not repulsive. He will attract people like honey to a bee and he will head up this government. He will have all the right answers. This guy's going to be a smooth operator. And he's going to know exactly what to say and how to say it. And he's going to be very, very intelligent. And uh, he will promise peace, but he will deliver bondage instead. And he will be a Gentile, not a Jew. And I know this because all the beasts that came out of the sea, and knowing the sea is a symbol of the Gentile nations, or unbelievers as it's considered in, in the Bible, all of the beasts represent kingdoms that were opposed to Israel and the Jews. All of the kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream are opposed to the Jews. So it makes sense that the beast will not be a Jew. He will be a Gentile. All right, so moving on to chapter 8. So as we begin to study this chapter, it is important that we remember two years have passed now. From chapter 7's dream, it was the first year of Belshazzar, in his reign. Now it's the third year. So two years have passed and Daniel has another vision. And he says, in the third year, King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, notice he's calling himself the Hebrew name, had a vision. So there are 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Malachi and Matthew, we know there's 400 years and everybody always says, 
Well, God was silent during those 400 years. He was so put out with the, the Jewish people. Not really. A lot's going on. So we're going to reveal what was actually being played out during this time frame. Okay? And so um, chapter 8 helps fill in that, that what was taking place. Daniel's visions were beginning to come true during this time. Gabriel's explanation to Daniel and his vision foretold exactly what would happen over the next 250 years with the vision in, in this chapter, in chapter 8. So the ram and the horns represent the expansion of the Medo-Persian Empire. So the two horns, which scripture says higher, came up last, right? The two horns are the Medo Median Empire that held supremacy before Persia. But of the two, Persia became the greater power. Now they merged, if you remember from last week, they merged due to a marriage. So Persia was the bigger empire at that point, although Median Empire was, was a nothing to sneeze at. It was a big empire itself. But Persia had become greater. And so the Persian king wanted to marry the Median king's daughter. So the king gave his daughter and the dowry was the empire. And that's how the merge, it was a peaceful empire, how the merge of the Medo-Persian Empire came to be. So um, um, that's how it became a, a big empire. So, all right, and then the goat that raced across the ground is considered Greece, the fast expansion of the Greek Empire. The goat became exceedingly great at the height of its power, but the large horn had broken off. What that is meaning as what we, we can understand from most commentators, is Alexander the Great conquered swiftly and became a great leader and died of a fever at the age of 32. He was at the height of his, you could say, career, right? And when he died, suddenly his kingdom was divided into four smaller kingdoms by the four generals. So that's the broken off long horn, right? So, a point to ponder. When Daniel received this particular vision, the Persian Empire was only in its formative stages. So remember, we've got to go back in time. 14 years earlier, Belshazzar's king, right? He's gone through all this instability of all these assassinations of these kings after Nebuchadnezzar died. And so we're backing up time. The Persia, Persia hasn't, hasn't gotten their momentum yet to be this. Babylon is still the big dog in the land, the big the empire. And so, and Alexander, uh, Alexander's Greek empire hasn't even existed yet when he has this vision of the ram and the goats. That's just mind-blowing to me. Yet the vision foretells centuries ahead of time Persia's rise to power and Alexander's greatness along with his sudden death and the division that was predicted about his empire being divided up into four parts. This prophecy is so accurate that critics insist that it was written after the events occurred. But this is Josephus. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian and he recorded all of these visions when Daniel had, you know, he's writing them all out. So when Alexander conquered Jerusalem, the Jewish high priest showed him this prophecy from the book of Daniel and said, this is you. This is what's happening. And he couldn't refute it. But, but, there, but as a result of this, Alexander was more lenient to the Jews because of what Josephus had shown him. So the prophecies like this one should encourage us to fully embrace the Bible 
as the accurate and divinely inspired word of God. Man, when you press the scriptures, they come up strong. They lap over each other. There's stories that go around. Other chronicles have been documented that are outside the Bible, that line up with the Bible. It's just, it's amazing. It gets me excited. So, okay, so regarding the prophecies, let's remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's, you know, important that we remember that. God speaks even to us today through Daniel's prophecies. And I just wanted to put that out there. So, at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 2 says, In my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision I was beside the Ule uh, Ule Canal. All right. Susa is a city famous for its citadel. A citadel is a fort. And it is located about 200 miles east of Babylon. So Babylon is there and Susa is here. Okay. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the Babylonian Empire. All right. So, um, it belonged to the Babylonians, arch enemies, the Persians. And it would be another 12 years that they would join the Medes and overthrow the Babylonian, uh, Babylon and Belshazzar back in chapter 5. So, to emphasize this change, God sets Daniel's vision in Susa, which was becoming the up coming center of world power. Now, the reason I picked this map, just for a little sidestep, in the book of Esther, in this is the palace where King Xerxes makes Esther his queen many years later. This hasn't happened yet. And saves her people from complete annihilation. You know, by coincidence? I think not. And then the reason I have Nehemiah's journey here, one, it was a big map and you could see it, but two, um, soon we're going to see at the end of Daniel the Israelites will be released to go back home and Nehemiah is with the Persian king and he's kind of sad and he, he wants to and the king is friendly with him and says what's the matter he goes I really like to go back to my people and he gives him supplies and lets him go back to rebuild the wall to begin the rebuild of Jerusalem and so I just wanted to show you how far that was, but that, was a, that just was a better map for Babylonian and Susa. But also, it's important. Um, these cities play an important part as we're reading about all this in all of the Old Testament history. No one in Daniel's day could have imagined the fall of Babylon and Susa's role in the unfolding drama of history that was yet to come. Only Daniel would see the preview of these incredible events that were going to take place. So we know from our lesson that the ram and the two horns are the Medo-Persian kings and that the goat is the king of Greece because scripture says so. And the large horn between the eyes is the first king, which we believe is probably Alexander the Great. And he was not technically a king, but he was a great conqueror. So he's somebody great is the point. The four horns that replace the broken one are the four kingdoms 
that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. And that's referring to verses 20 through 22. As Daniel wondered about the animals and the horns, it says in, um, in verse 5, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the glorious land. The prophecy speaks specifically of an individual who descends from one of the four horns or generals who had divided Alexander's um, empire. And his power extends to the glorious land. We know the glorious land is Israel. This was the best uh, one I could find. These are the four generals, the names of them. And then out of this particular general rises another person in power. And so let me continue. Gabriel explains that in the latter part of the reign of the four kings that succeeded Alexander, in verse 23 it says, a king of bold face who is skilled in intrigue, or another translation says, he has great shrewdness and intelligence, shall rise. Gabriel's explanation repeats that this harsh, deceitful ruler attacks and defeats God's people, arrogantly opposes God Almighty himself, and finally is destroyed, and scripture points out, but not by human power. Now, at first this prophecy reminds us of the little horn in Daniel 7, the Antichrist who will rise to power at the end of history. Though this ruler resembles the Antichrist, many believe he must be a different person. This ruler comes to power during the latter days of the Greek period, after the division, but well before the birth of Christ. History has proven that there is a person, okay, that in Jewish history who exactly fits this prophecy, and his name is Antichus Aphinius. All right? His name is Antichus Aphinius, and he is actually known as the abomination that causes desolation. So anytime scripture, and in fact in Revelation, uh, I can't remember if it's an angel or John, says... Um, the abomination that causes desolation. He's referring to Antichus Aphinius, but he's a precursor to the Antichrist. Here's the, and here's the history. Antichus descended from the lines of the Seleucuses, or Seleucus, one of the generals, uh, which was from the Seleucids, and um, who took over Alexander's empire. He begins to reign in the latter part of these four kingdoms. And as he seizes the Syrian throne in 175 B.C., he soon begins to extend his reign by sending armies to the south and the east, as Daniel's vision foretells in verse 9. It says, out of them come another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Other rulers in power tolerated the Jews, but Antichus decides to dedicate himself to their extermination. Okay. His goal is to convert Jerusalem into a Greek city and the Jewish temple into a house of pagan worship and the Jewish people into Gentiles or the unbelievers, right? So the Jews have a choice to renounce their spiritual heritage or die. That's the kind of ruler he was. So he orders the execution of any Jew. This is all documented in history. Any Jew who practiced circumcision, kept the Sabbath, or possessed a copy of the scriptures and ordered temple sacrifices to cease. So that is in their tradition. The Jews separated themselves from the Gentiles through circumcision. They um, kept the Sabbath because it keep it holy. It's one of the commandments. They studied scriptures 
and they had temple sacrifices to keep themselves clean. And it's all very scriptural. It's all from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And, and he is known to have killed approximately 100,000 Jews during this time in history. Besides being a horrible man, he is known, like I said, as the abomination that causes desolation, but here's why. He set up a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the Jewish temple. And on the pagan altar uh, there in the temple, he slaughtered pigs. And pigs back in, I think it's in, I want to say Deuteronomy, and I should have checked it, and I apologize. He... Um, might be Leviticus, actually, that you can't, that they don't, they're not to eat animals with split hooves. That's considered unkosher. It's considered unclean. Pigs have split hooves, so that's why they don't eat pork. And so this was really, oh my gosh, besides a pagan god, they're slaughtering pigs. That's why it's the abomination that causes desolation. This vision foretold in verse 11 a place of his God's, a place of his sanctuary, which is God's, uh, was overthrown. So it talks about that in scripture in verse 8. It was overthrown. His actions, though, resulted in a revolt, a Jewish rebellion called the Maccabees War, led by Judah Mac Maccabees. It was a bloody fight, but the Jews won. And upon hearing that the Jews had a victory, Antiochus went insane. This re record appears in the Mac uh, Maccabees recorded books in detail which may not be the inspired word of God, but it is a worthy source for accurate detail Okay, about this time. Again, fulfilling prophecy, it said in verse 25, he will be destroyed not by human power. He went insane. Interesting. Here, Antiochus's whole reign, as it relates to the Jewish people, is prophesied in detail. Yet, at the time of Daniel, when the vision was revealed to him, Antiochus's birth was more than 300 years away. Hadn't even happened. Isn't that wild? So, as the vision ends, Daniel hears two angels speaking and one asking, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled concerning the defilement of the temple? And the answer is for 2,300 evenings and mornings. A evening and the Sabbath begins in the evening. The Jewish Jews look at the day as the evening, then the morning. It's not the morning and evening. Evening and morning. And... Since there were two daily sacrifices a day for the continual burnt offering, which is found in Exodus 29, verses 38 through 42, according to scholars, that is one day, two sacrifices a day. So 2,300 is two sacrifices per day. You divide that by two, it gives 1,150 days, which equals Three years and 55 days, which is three and a half days, which is a time, time, and ends, ends the time, you know, what they're talking about in Scripture there. So that particular vision, most commentators believe, was Antichus Phineas during this time. Um, this time. All right, so history records that the temple was desecrated, and in the fall of 167 B.C., and rededicated in December of 164 B.C. And even now, the Jewish people still celebrate this time of rededication, and it's called Hanukkah. That's where Hanukkah comes from, of that time in history. One commentator brought up a great question. The vision in Daniel 8 is fulfilled before Christ's first coming, so why is it described as concerning the time of the end? Probably 
Antichus is a prophetic picture of the Antichrist at the end of the age, so that the vision of Daniel 8 foreshadows and illustrates what will happen around the time of the second coming. So that was a horrible time in history. It's going to ramp up even more. All right? This is why we study scripture. We can't afford to be ignorant. The angel tells him to seal up the vision because this is for the future. And only until John's vision and revelation are the seals opened and revealed. Right, right. So now we need to remember that God has allowed, God has allowed this pagan ruler to reign. God used him as an instrument of affliction for the apostasy of the Jewish people. This is what had happened. And Kenneth Gangle is a, is a commentator I read, and here's what he said, and I thought this gave good insight to this. According to the Maccabeus book, so he's pulling this from their history, their documented history of the Maccabeus War during this time with Antichus Phineas of Jewish history, the Jews had fallen into a secularization of their faith and service to God. In an attempt to integrate themselves with the monarchs from the Mediterranean world, which were considered the cool, posh people, the Jews began to imitate Greek behavior in almost every area, neglecting the study of the Hebrew language and the Holy Scriptures. They denied their faith, refused circumcision, and some changed their Hebrew names to Greek names and ostracized the conservative minority loyal to the faith. Now, isn't it interesting to think about in today's world, Christianity, to be a Christian is kind of marginalized. And even some Christians are saying, um, it's, well, I'll, I'll, we'll accept everything, it's okay. You know, God will love us all, there's no black and white, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, I'm trying to follow the Bible. God is a God of black and white, he's not in the gray area at all, he's very clear. Now, we're also to show love, though, and... But isn't it interesting? We're watering down what this, what's going on. Very similar. Harold Honer, in a book called Between the Testaments, sums up the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament in one paragraph. I thought this was good and I wanted to share. When the Persians defeated Babylon, the Jews went back to their homeland with no desire to worship idols. So after all of this is over and they return, we'll see. They really did want to follow the Lord and, and, and stay there. But unable to restore the temple to its former glory. With the importance of the synagogue increasing, Jewish life centered around the Torah rather than the temple. With the increasing influence of Hellenism, which is a Greek culture, which is what Paul talks about in Galatians and Colossians and Thessalonians, all those small letters, he's concerned because those churches, it's called Gnosticism, they were people in... in, in integrating themselves within the uh, first century Christian church watering down and screwing up what the message of the gospel really was so there was a fear here and that's what was going on with the increasing influence of Hellenism they saw the need to have their scriptures translated into Greek because so many people had gotten away from the Hebrew language okay and persecuted by the Seleucids which is where Antichus Aphinius came from they became more engrossed with the hope of a messianic deliverance. So that's when they began amping it up, 
we need to have the Messiah come. We're looking for the Messiah, and they're looking for a king in his glory, an army, a warrior that's going to take out the Romans, and that's how they miss Jesus coming in on a donkey, a plain-faced, soft-spoken man. Well, I don't know if he's soft-spoken, but I, he, but he was kind, and he was. They just passed him over. They were looking for this because they um, they got carried away with with this deliverance. Save us, save us. Rome's capture of much of the Mediterranean world brought peace. It was actually called a Pax Romana, which was an enforced peace, by the way, Um, although its power brought tyranny. So they might have forced the peace, but it brought tyranny. And at this point, Jesus Christ entered human history to bring man into an eternal communication with God, to bring peace to individuals as well as to the world, and to deliver people from the bondage of sin. He was rejected and crucified both by his people and by the pagan world. But the message of Christ's death and resurrection went out in Greek, the language of the day, bringing hope to messianic deliverance both for the present and the future when the Messiah will rule the world. And I love that because Revelation talks, sends letters out to the different churches. It starts with the seven different churches. That was, cons- I forgot, uh, I can't think of the term. It had a term. But it was basically the main Pony Express, if you will, mail place to get the... Those are the main seven spots. And it went out in Greek so the word would get out about these visions. I just love that. Because God always has a plan. There's no ever... There's no like, oopsie, with God. It's always a um, deliberate thing. So let me ask you, are we loving God but looking more like the world with our actions and our speech? We have to be aware. We have to be ready and full of discernment and clarity to recognize where we are in history. It's amping up out there. The season is coming upon us. And I will leave you with this. We are either becoming more like the beasts described in the passage or more like the Son of Man. The question is, who will we be more like today? We have to, we have to ask ourselves. So let ourselves apart, be, set ourselves apart from the world. And let them know us by our actions and our speech and our love. Like that old song back in the 70s. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. So let's pray. Lord, may we always, always trust you in times of prosperity and in times of persecution. May the accuracy of these prophecies convince us that you are in control and there has always been a plan of redemption. Always. The scarlet, beautiful letter, the scarlet cord has run through the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. We trust you and we surrender to you, almighty God. May your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, ma'am. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson, and I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word. 